So I assume you're going to ask me questions and I'm going to answer them. That That's usually how a podcast kind of works. So yes, I think that's probably the best way to go about this. I'm typically on the other end of the podcast. Uh-huh. Okay. So this should be fun. This is Content Content, a bi-monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. So today's guest is Felice Banner, who is one of those people that I met at a conference. And it's one of the best things about going to conferences is that you, you hear about somebody and you know somebody, and then all of a sudden you meet them and they're like, oh yeah, I know you, I've heard of you. And like, you're, you're the best friend of ever. And like, Felice, we met two years ago, I believe at LavaCon. And the next thing I know, you're like inviting me up to your house and we're just hanging, you know, we're just hanging out and it's just having a great time. Like I knew you forever. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this show because you're just one of those people that I would just love to talk to. And I want to have people listen to you talk to me. That's fantastic, Ed. I love that. I just have to say that this is not the first time I've been introduced as one of those people I've met at a conference. <laughs> You're one of those people. <laughs> I guess I am. How how is uh, everything? Everything in Saratoga. Everything's fine. We had a we had a, a crazy evening. Joel came home and he was just at a real estate closing, and. He's a math professor and he has papers to oh, grade wow. to get back tomorrow. And he has some property also. And so he left his briefcase at the lawyer's office and walked out and came home and just realized that he didn't have anything. And he has to get these papers done and back oh, tomorrow. And he did not have the lawyer's cell phone number. And so then it was six degrees of separation. Only it was one where we couldn't find, I didn't know this woman. He didn't have her cell phone number, uh, went online on the white pages, tried to get information, drove to her, what we thought was her house. No one was there, came back home. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm going about this the wrong way. I went on Facebook. I found her. I <laughs> saw who she was, you know, who we had friends in common in her profile picture is a friend of mine. So I called my friend Diana and said, do you have, you know, this woman's phone number, cell phone? Yes. And Joel got his bag back. <laughs> oh, modern technology. Right? We could never talk like this in the past. And then, you know, oh, by the way, you don't just drive around anymore to kind of find information. You just go on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is and find someone you know who knows someone who needed to get in touch with. Exactly. Exactly. And actually, I was thinking as we were driving back to the house after not finding this woman's home, <laughs> was that I bet my children who are in their 20s don't know what a phone book is. Like, you know, the whole thing about how you'd have to sit on a phone book on a chair if you were short. And or how, drive a car. Yeah, that was a joke. But if you said that, would anybody even know what you were talking about? No, no, because it'd be, well, you could sit on a phone book. Well, no, I have a phone book in my, in my pocket right, right, right now. Right, right. What is a phone book? Right. Like, I mean, I think we're the, probably the last generation that rem memorizes phone numbers. And I mean, I remember yeah. some of my phone, my friend's phone numbers because they've had their cells for so long that I had to, but it's, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. It's like, okay, input your digits and you never have to remember. Right. Like, like that, that memory hole is, is, is now useful for something else. I feel like. Well, my Google voice number is my my phone number for my childhood. Oh, get the hell out of here. Yeah. So people call 
all the time that are trying to find my parents who are dead, you know, or something, but it's my childhood phone number. Oh my God. That's insane. Mm-hmm. That, wow. That's lucky. Mm-hmm. It's not lucky. It, it, ha- it was intentional. I mean, it, that oh, num- really? Oh, the number was in my, in, in the landline on the, in the house, the family house forever. And I ported it over. I didn't realize, well, five, five, I had out of a landline in so long that it wouldn't have mattered, but I can't believe you can do that. Well, it's tricky. You have, you have to port it to a cell phone and then the cell phone to Google voice. So it was a, we oh, had, okay. we had a SIM card that we did it with. So tricky, tricky, tricky. Interesting. So Felice, you've, you've, obviously had a long career in in, tech, in the technical world. And I know that you're an instructional learning designer, but that's so many, that could mean so many different things. So why don't you start and why don't you tell us a little bit about you and how you got to be where you are now, 25, 20 X years later? Of course, absolutely. So this is a story that I find myself telling a lot lately, and it goes back quite, quite a long way. and. Uh, sometimes I talk about it from, you know, people ask me, have you really been an STC member for such a long time? And (laughs) since, since the eighties or, you know, why are you involved in technical communication if you're a learning experience designer? And my career started, uh, I'm going to go all the way back because we've got plenty of time here, Ed. When I was in high school, I did engineering drafting for my father's company. And this was in the seventies. And back then, uh, it was an engineering firm, and they put me in the drafting department because I like to draw. I like to draw straight lines, right? Mm-hmm. And I learned how to ink with a ruling pen, and I learned Leroy lettering. Now, I'm probably the youngest person in the world that knows Leroy lettering, unless someone took it up as a strange hobby. But um, I went to college for graphic design, and oh, okay. when I graduated college, um, graduated uh, FIT in New York City, I oh. uh, I saw a job in the newspaper uh, for either a graphic designer or an engineering drafts person. And I'm like, well, I've got both. And I went oh. on the interview and it was at the conference board and I got the job. And it's funny because I was offered two jobs at the same time. And if I had taken the other job, my life would have gone in a crazy different direction. So (laughs) I was offered a job as a signage designer for the Bronx Zoo. And then I was offered this job at the conference board. I'm not getting out of here. And I took the conference board job because it was in Manhattan, in Midtown Manhattan, and I wouldn't have to go up to the Bronx every day. So instead of becoming a signage designer in a zoo, which would have been phenomenal, right? I think about that now. Um, <laughs> I became a uh, information visualization person. So uh, basically my job was to get data and turn it into graphs and charts and maps and all sorts of illustrations and then ink all of those illustrations, uh, all financial data. And I remember oh, my first, yeah, my first day of work, I was you know, I'm right there, 21 years old, 22 years old, and very, very serious, had on a suit, and I go sit down, and it's in a room with four drafting tables, and only three of us, and then we're facing this office, and that was our boss was in the office, and I was at one of the front tables, and it was, we had like 10 o'clock, take a break time, go have a cup of coffee, and I'm, you know, still trying to be very serious, and I hear singing behind me, just like, 
<laughs> and I turn around and there are about a dozen or so wind up toys all running around the drafting board of the gentleman behind me. And <laughs> his name was Virgil Koch. He was an illustrator and information visualization specialist from Romania. And he taught me everything for, at that time, everything taught me how you, you know, how to take the data, how to, how to, you know, show it, um, how, how to ink a thick line forever with a six point ruling pen. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's not an easy thing to do. And he was my mentor. And basically there were maybe, you know, 20 or 30 of us in that field in New York city at the time, probably could it be a little, a couple more. And, uh, I was, I was headhunted. Well, like, come on over here. So I stayed at the conference board for a while. Then I went over to an agency and did charts and graphs and maps for them. Um, a lot of hand-drawn illustrated, um, illustrated concept maps, which back then were practically unheard of. But, and this, this is the very early 80s. I worked on one of the love stamps while I was at that agency for the U.S. Postal Service. That was pretty cool. I learned to wow. set type. Yeah, I learned to set type. Mm. And then I got a job at the Federal Reserve Bank in their publications department doing data visualization. And back then at the Fed, oh, wow. you were programmed. It was half of the job was drawing, right? And taking the data and creating charts and graphs and maps and data illustrations. And the other part was programming for graphics. So okay, we wow. programmed in two languages that don't exist anymore. First, we're on IBM dummy terminals. And then we got our first computers in. And we had SunSpark stations. Oh, that was wow. my first desktop computer. <laughs> like, you know, Holy cow. Right? And, and so from, from there, uh, you know, it, this was all about learning to work with data. And I realized that I needed to know more about working with data. So I went back to NYU to the Gallatin School, which was a design your own major. And they took as many credits as they possibly could and let me just study statistics. And I got another degree in data visualization. So all undergraduate. And so hmm. um, that's when I joined STC. And it was really interesting because I was looking for people I could talk to that would understand what I did for a living. And I went to a conference in New York just for a day um, and met a whole bunch of people in this space. But the other people that I was surrounded by in my life were all people working somehow with data, trying to simplify it so that others could read it. So I was always associated with the documentation arm. I was always mm. associated with a content strategy arm, even though that's not what we called it back then. <laughs> I was associated with data scientists. And so in my world, everything was about making the complex clear in some way, shape, or form. Mm. And so that... Let's fast forward to 1997, God knows how many years later. And... Uh, I was filling out forms to get my child into kindergarten and decided that I didn't want to have to compete to get into kindergarten. And I wanted to move back to upstate New York, back to Saratoga Springs. Oh, and, uh, and my parents were getting old and I just wanted a different life. And so 
I was looking for a job outside of New York in the Saratoga area, and no one knew what data visualization was. Nobody needed it. Mm. Um, and if they did, they weren't going to pay what I was getting in New York. <laughs> and documentation strategies up in up in Albany nearby hired me as a information visualization person um, to do whatever they needed. And I worked on any and everything they had. I worked on um, a 2000 page scientific catalog. And because I was willing to take this leap and use technology for anything, and we can talk more about how I'm a 57 year old digital native, two things we I want to talk about later. So remind me the the being a digital native and forms, because I forms still make me crazy. So, <laughs> but when I moved upstate uh, after I had that job with documentation strategies, uh, they actually helped me um, get a job at Skidmore College. Skidmore College was looking for someone to help oh. faculty transition uh, into an online space uh, in in ninety seven ninety eight, and they wanted. It was the job was coordinator of training and documentation. And basically what it was, was to help faculty build websites for their courses. And I built a whole training arm that wasn't there before for the faculty and the staff and the students and had a great boss who, uh, who, you know, people feel very differently about bosses who take credit for what they do. My boss took credit for what I did, but let me do anything. So what did I mm. care if he took credit for it? If I could do whatever, you know, and make mm. things happen, I was happy. So um, from there, I was doing more and more work with faculty. And then one of the programs at Skidmore College, the University Without Walls, got a half a million dollars to go online, to start offering online classes. Mm. And so... I actually walked into the director's office and said, why aren't you working with me? I'll never forget that. He'll never forget that either. either. Well, probably not. No. So he hired me away from the regular college and I helped build an online program and no learning management system designing interfaces that were, you know, all based on sound information design principles. And I wrote the back end with the help of, the programming team, I learned programming cold fusion. So this was my first foray wow. into, the, into the, the learning design space coming from, you know, information design, data visualization, UX and usability design. I have all of that in my, in my pocket already by the time I got to this stage. And then, and then I, I had a faculty member who kept insisting that he wanted his design a specific way. And I kept saying, Francois, you can't have it that way. You can't have it that way. And he goes, but I want it this way. And I went and I sat down in his classroom and that's how he taught. And I realized I didn't know what I was talking about. And so I went back to school for my doctorate in instructional design and learning technologies. And, um, and fell in love with the theory of education. So um, I'm still ABD all these years later, many years later. Mm. Uh, I had a life um, life event that kind of stopped everything in its tracks. But from this transition to the online space and to the online learning space and the learning design space, coming from an information design and data visualization approach, to me, everything still had to be beautiful. Everything had to be easy to navigate. And my learners 
needed to know where they were and where they were going. And, you know, now I have all this knowledge about learning and, um, and cognition and, and, you know, the science of learning in our brains. And so now I have different styles and approaches that I sort of integrate into my work. I said, I said, sort of, sorry about that, that I integrate into my work to make learning experiences that are memorable, meaningful, and, and motivational and um, measurable. I like the M's. So, <laughs> so that's how I got to where I am in this, in the, the learning space. What's happened is, you know, in any place, if you do something really well, you get promoted and hmm. I really strive for excellence. So I got promoted and promoted and promoted and ended up being the director of this and then the director of that. And then the director of online learning at different universities and realized three years ago that I don't want to set policy. I don't want to manage people. I want to design. Hmm. And so three years ago, I, quit my director of online teaching and learning position and launched my own consulting firm. And I've been very busy since that day. And I love what I'm doing. I love consulting in this space. I do uh, high level work and I do, um, you know, tiny designs. I do, I help people shape programs. I help organizations determine how to create learning experiences. I design learning experiences. I facilitate learning experiences. I run workshops and classes, and I do a lot of mentoring in this space. And I'm shaping learning again instead of setting policy. That was a long story. Not long story short, but long story. Shaping learning policy. Yeah. Oh, Shaping learning experiences. Shaping learning experiences and a policy. At least me in my career, I'm at that senior level, of course. And it's, yeah. you know, I'm in a large organization and it's like, oh, you've got to go up and you've got to go up. And it's like, I, I don't, I'm, I've been doing this for 25 years. I'm good at what I do. Yeah. Let me do what I want to do instead of, oh, in order to get a promotion and make more money or whatever, you've got to manage people. I'm like, no, I'm just so much better at, managing content than people it's just it's it's a frustrating it's frustrating to be absolutely mm. absolutely and you know i got to that spot and i know other people who are there because i've mentored folks through this and i've i you know people always ask me how you know why did you do this (laughs) how does it Mm -hmm. feel and there's a you know, you, you think about what your passions are and what you like to do and i have to create i have to make things Mm, yes And so, you know, if you need to be immersed in content, I need to make things, I need to take a mess and make it, you know, organized in in a, if we're talking about content, content, and I need to create content that people can access and work through that has, has a meaning and and gives them, uh, you know, more knowledge. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of work recently, a lot of uh, research into, uh, motivation and to what that means from a psychological perspective, because in learning there's motivation. When we talk about designing for users or designing content, uh, do we talk about motivation? Typically, no, right? We're not trying to move our lo- users through anything. We're trying to help them find something, right? So I've this. I've got this added layer when I'm designing learning about motivating 
learners through this space. And what I'm really curious about right now, and I'm luckily going to be able to talk to a couple of experts in a couple of weeks, is the emotional side to all of that, the emotional side of motivation in the learning space. Okay, I really want to talk to this. This is really the, a lot of what I wanted to talk to you about because I knew that you were kind of in the learning space, but you're or the e-learning space. But in general, it's like in learning is motivation. But I do some I do some e-learning in terms of in our in our firm, and I feel like a lot of the e-learning is just like a CYA thing where you have to make sure that you click through everything on the page to make sure that. The, the 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 LMS the learning management system yeah. recognizes that you've clicked everything on the page so you're in theoretically are learning what they want you to do but i feel like it's it's just a you're not learning anything it's just a clicking the boxes thing so that way a company can make sure that you know about the processes or the policies or their whatever the case may be but and I, i'm not i'm saying this in terms of what sure. I've been doing inside, but I've also felt, I've also talked to people who have required this in other industries. It's like it sounds like the same thing. And I, where do you go? How do you make it where someone's going to make this engaging and really retain something instead of just clicking the boxes? So there's there's a lot of things to unwrap and all of that, mm. and and that's something sorry about the rant. Answer. That's okay. No, because I'll rant also, and it's it's funny. Saul Carliner and I do a mm. an advanced instructional design for e learning uh, certificate program for uh, the training conference occasionally, and you know we see this all the time, and a lot of it is just click through. A lot of it is. Uh, and and I I'm not an e-learning person. I'm a learning designer, right? Okay. And okay. So I've done a lot of work in the online space, but I've done work in the face-to-face -face space too. So that's why I I don't I hardly ever use the term e-learning. So, but uh, so I have to say I think 2018 was the year of compliance training in my uh, <laughs> in my in my checkbook because I got paid to do over so much compliance training out there. <laughs> and, and so what I see, I, I know ways that this can be done differently and it's building community around compliance mm. and having, uh, and, you know, people talk about scenario-based training, scenario-based training, which is very different from constructing narratives around your content. There is content that people have to know. There is content that people have to read. Legally, if we say legally, you must read this, you know, and, mm. and sign this box, then legally you must read this and sign this box. But why would you want to? What's the purpose of it? Why would you, you know, oh, so I can keep my job? Well, you know what? Things really go wrong. And when things go wrong, what are you going to do? And so in these compliance situations, really what people need to know is what could go wrong what do I need to do if something goes wrong? And who do I talk to? Who do I talk to? Who do I reach out to? And it's really like, we are human, we are responsible. And for a lot of the compliance firms that I do work with, um, they talk about a culture, creating a culture of compliance. And that's what it's about. And there's no click through anything that will ever get your team or you know your organization to to take action or to, you know, act appropriately, unless you have a, a full culture of compliance. It has to be woven into everything. Compliance can't just be 
this click-through training. It makes me crazy. Hmm. You, want, you want to rant. We can stand on the same soapbox, Ed. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yeah, it's it's just, it's crazy. So, you know, we talk about the ethics. How do you create an ethical environment? So there's hmm. the ethics training. There's, I have done the sexual harassment training over and over and over again for different universities, you know, trying to help them redo that. And in those cases, it's uh, it's about not putting content online, right? So one of my clients, mm. one of my clients is the Interfaith Youth Corps, and I talk about them a lot because um, they came to me looking for a plan for going online and how they can transition their content on into online, and that that's how they put it, and so. My work with them, in my work with them, and it was, I got to the recommendation stage. Phase one was all building up to recommendations and presented to the the uh, ch- the chief executive officer, Ibu Patel, who um, is very, very attached to everything that's going on in his organization. I love, love him, love the way he works, love, mm. love that place. And because of the work that they're doing is built around dialogue, they need to have dialogue. And they can't just start by throwing content at someone. They need to start with dialogue. And so as I'm giving them their recommendations, Ibu stops the meeting, stands up and says, I just brought in an e-learning, you know, an e-learning, I should say that, an online learning consultant to tell me that we shouldn't go online. (laughs) And I said, yes, I'm a, it's the learning design space. It's this notion that that first meeting needs to be a conversation. And from that conversation, you determine the knowledge exchange that you want to have and that you shape your organization to be a knowledge-based organization instead of a content-based organization. And I've been, and I want to just to use those words again, uh, this I said recently in the, in the STC roundtable, I'm the curator for this month. I said that uh, you know every every knowledge exchange is a learning experience. Hmm. And so, if you think about, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but who cares, right? <laughs> we That's what we're here for. Um, you know, if you are, you know, you're typing in. Uh, in a chat window with the the online help that pops up, that's a knowledge exchange. That's a learning experience, right? If you're building a embedded help system, that's a learning experience. All of that, right? I'll let you get a word in edgewise. Here. No, yeah, no, but. I... But yes, I yes, it's all a learning experience, but. How do you make it engaging? Like this is, we're trying to, I, we're, I'm trying to, let me, let me break this down a little bit. How do you make it engaging and how do you get people excited about that learning experience instead of checking a box that, okay, on top of my daily role, I have to learn this and make it engaging. I mean, we're trying to do that. I mean, I e-learning is difficult because it, at least where I work, it's a lot of bullet points and PowerPoints, and this is what we have to, you know, we have to pass on to somebody. But in terms of documentation or in terms of online content, 
it's it's it, I think it's different. So it's like, how do you get? I mean, so so you're 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 stating that all learning needs to be engaging, right? And it does. I, I believe I, so. I hate that word. I hate that word because you can't measure engagement. Although there are people who who say that you can and, and have different ways. So learning, it's like I I guess. I, engaging is just a, to me doesn't strike me as the wrong word. It's like relevant, valid, uh, Im- imminent, important. When I need it, there's um, Bob Mosier and uh, his partner, whose name escapes me, uh, Conrad God- Godfredson and Bob Mosier have posited this: the five moments of learning need. And I actually have to look them up because I don't remember them all because I'm not, because I'm not in, in my five moments of learning need. Uh, I know one is when you're learning it for the first time. Okay. Learning it for the first time, when you're learning more, when you're applying it, when things go wrong and when things change. And so these moments of learning need kind of go alongside the, the type of content you're creating, the learning content you're working with and the learning experience you're designing so that you create something that is, I'll use your words, you know, I'll, that is, that becomes, that is engaging, right? So I think relevant is more important than engaging. If I'm learning something that's relevant to what I'm doing, I will be engaged, right? So um, if I have to, uh, you know, if I, and unfortunately, you know, the sexual harassment trainings that we all have to take or the, the, um, so there are so many different ways to look at that. That's a tough, that's a tough, okay. One. <laughs> okay. so we but, can go, we can go into the psychology side. We can go into the game mechanic side of it, but, um, or the, you know, to say that a motivator could be food, it could be money, it could be okay. time, okay. it could be power, it could be, you know, community, it could be vacation time. It could be, you know. Okay. Okay. So you're saying, okay, I, I get what you're saying there. So another thing you wanted me to remind you about was forms are making you crazy. And I get that, but I want to, I, I, there's, there's so much to unpack there that I oh, think yeah. I'm just going to let you say, okay, why don't you open that conversation and we can go from there. Well, before we open that conversation, I want to tell you how I'm a digital native, because there's not that, you know, there's a couple of us out there, 57-year-old digital natives. And my father was an inventor. My father worked on Apollo. He was one of the the 100,000 people or 10,000 people that got us to the moon. He worked on the LEM. I actually have space junk in my home. Nice. So, and when I was a kid, we didn't have dice for a board game. We had a random number generator where you push wow, down a button. Nerdy. And, yeah, massively. So for me, technology has always been a tool. And I love that. And I love most tech com people get that. And, and that's why I feel like I've always found my peeps, found my tribe, as, uh, as Jack Molisani would say. But uh, going on to the forum, uh, here we are in 2019 or 5780, if you go by the other calendar. Um, and 
people still can't design forms. And I want to swear, but I won't swear. I won't say bad words on your podcast. Edmar. You can. Other people have. Believe me. Okay. And I have plenty of times. So it's like, but, it oh, my God. Thank Okay. Thank effing God. Crazy. It makes me crazy. And I don't understand it. And I don't understand with our push for accessibility and our push for usability that I'm still getting forms that I can't fill out. And boy, you know, I just, and every time it makes me crazy. And I actually, for one of my clients who shall not be named, who's a very, very large, prestigious Ivy League university, Hmm. I was redesigning forms for them while I was redesigning courses, uh, working on courseware and supporting one of their programs. And the documents they were having their students download to fill out to consider as learning exercises that have been part of their program for years were frightening. And I just, you know, I get forms from the state. I get forms from my clients and I can't fill them out. And so much of this, I remember Luke Robleski, name wow. from out of nowhere, who was a forms designer in the way, 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 way back machine. And I just want to turn the machine way back and become a forms designer all over again. So I can either go back and become a signage designer for the zoo, but everything's like motion picture now. And I don't think I can do the motion picture signage. Hmm. Or um, I just want to build up a forms portfolio again. I have an old forms portfolio and just start designing forms again, because God, the world needs it big time. Now, where does that start from? Does that start from the UX exp- the side, the development side? I, I believe me, I don't disagree with you. And there's so many forms that are that. It starts not, I mean, with a contract with the state because <laughs> the okay. state has the worst forms. I have no idea where it starts. I have no idea who's responsible for these forms anymore. I think that I could just go massive social media on this if I decide to do it and just say, send me your forms, you know? No, I agree, but it's like I think the problem is like whose responsibility is it to to implement the form? And I guess there's no one that's supervising that. And you know, I feel like that's the problem with content in general, especially technical content. Where I am is that in so many places you have a Confluence wiki or you have some sort of wiki, and -hmm. people just throw stuff up against the wall. And next thing you know, there's no management and it's a disaster. And I feel like people who are designing forms are not they're filling it to a spec and maybe not understanding the empathy or okay why am i as a user filling out that form that's correct that's very 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 correct except that you'll have like standard templates for mobile forms or things like that that are in the ux development packets that you can design with but you know i'm talking paper I'm talking paper here. I'm talking paper. I'm talking phone. I'm, oh, wow. You know, mobile. I'm talking everything. And okay. back in the day, back in the day, there was a field of form design. There was. Right? Well, it makes sense. I mean, especially if you're doing it with paper that you have to, I mean, especially because you have to fit it into X amount of pages, you have to have that. I mean, especially oh, yeah. because if you're in a in a government or an educational setting, you have to have a wide variety of users with fire varied education levels and varied experiences with filling out forms and even with language barriers. Yeah, 
There's a great book. Um, oh, now I'm not going to remember the name of it. Oh, man. Message it to me afterwards and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, put it in the show notes because it's, um, it's about a lot of design, how it's designed for white men. What is the name of that book? A woman wrote it. Um, oh, I can't, I can't help you there. It's such a good book. I gave it to my daughter to read, so it's not on my bookshelf. But I will. I'll give you the name, and you can put it in the in the show notes. Sorry Perfect. about that. No, no worries. That's yeah. You know, that's where everything comes in play. Always a good thing, as you well know. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. I know. I mean, we're recording through a a website or a package called Zencaster. And I didn't know about it until you mentioned it when we met for the first time. So you've been doing podcasts for a while. Why don't you talk to me? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the podcasting space. Well, I haven't been doing a lot in the podcasting space in the past year or so, but I was the host of a podcast series called um, (laughs) My Brain Has Stopped Working, Ed. uh, modern learning on the air, modern oh, learning really? on the air. Yeah. Modern learning on the air for in-sync training. Jennifer Hoffman is a, a colleague and friend of mine. And I was, uh, I did the podcast series for Jennifer. It's great fun. Uh, and I did, I also started with a couple of podcasts for the information for zero group. Um, oh, okay. Interviewing folks. And I'd like to continue that. Um, I've got a a friend in the learning space. His name's Sam Rogers, and he does a lot of podcasting. And I want to talk to him because just last week, I was on a call with three other learning designers, three very different people, and we're having a great conversation. And we decided that we should have recorded it. And of course, we didn't. Um, But, you know, I think about uh, Matt Pierce from TechSmith does this uh, five trainers in a car. I don't know, or four trainers in a car uh, podcast. And I was on that once and it was so much fun. And I feel like these opportunities when we get together with people that we, you know, we like to talk to for all sorts of different reasons, uh, finding a way to record and share that. And I listened to a couple of the learning podcasts and I thought these are just two guys talking to each other, you know, and Mm. maybe coming up with a topic here or there. And I really like, I want to bring in, you know, maybe I want to start my own podcast series on a learning series uh, all over again. And, you know, I want to talk to people outside of my field. I want to talk to somebody like you in the software industry and say, you know, what are your frustrations in the learning space? How do you think we could solve that, solve them? And, you know, talk to my friends that are neurosurgeons and, Mm. and, you know, folks, from outside the space and, and have these conversations or just send them your way and you can talk to them about content. <laughs> well, we could certainly do that. Believe me, I have many thoughts about what drives me crazy about content. A lot of it is that, you know, it's, it's corporate or it's business. It's yeah. like, okay, how do you get people to understand that this is the way that you do things or this is the right way to do things, <clears throat> you know, you know, and especially when you're, you know, when you're a very small team, in a very large organization, and I'm, I'm, I've been 
I bitched about this before lots and lots of times and I shouldn't bitch about it because it's awesome, but <clears throat> it's, you know, I think that every, I think everyone in the field has the same problem is how do you, how do you communicate that to the important people to say, this is really worth doing. And I think, you know, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a, a big need for, for that guidance in our field. Right. So, you know, one of, one of the things that's interesting because spending, when I, when I work at LavaCon, right? People think I'm the AV team, you know, <laughs> they have no idea what I do. I used to present at LavaCon and then Jack asked me one year, would you do this virtual track? And I was sure. Right. And so now I'm, I'm stuck in the back of the room with a headset on for three days, but and no one at LavaCon has any idea what I do. Some people do like Barry safe knows what I do and mm. you know what I do. And people who've known me for years through STC know what I do. And, and, but I'm, I'm there and I'm, I'm listening and I'm, we're having a conversation in the virtual space and we're building a community around this content. And, and I say the content is the presentations going on. And, you know, the past couple of years, there've been a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about siloed content, right. Mm. And not being able to share content. And I think, cause most of my clients are higher ed, I'd say three quarters of my clients are in the higher education space. You want to talk about siloed content, honey, you ain't seen nothing until you've stepped into higher ed. Oh, you know? Oh boy. No, jeez. Yeah. And, and like, Oh my God. I can't even yeah. imagine. Yeah. The politics must be insane. Politics, but also FERPA guidelines, what you can and can't share. Ah. All sorts of, you know, and, and the data that's coming in now with, with analytics and student data and who can and can't see that data, it's just, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting space. But I think about in, you know, the training space and training content and how that's being stored and saved and the way we're designing around that and being able to reuse content from other places and trying to come up with ways to have structured authoring in the learning space um, and doing a little bit of work with the folks at the Institute for Learning Environment Design on trying to build a taxonomy around learning content. That's uh, all this, all this really cool stuff going out there, going on out there in the world. And, you know, I'd bring those folks in and talk to them in my, in my imaginary podcast. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is that there's so many people to talk to. Like you mentioned Saul Carliner, who I've met once and have been one of his talks. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, there's so many people like Luke Rubleski. It's like, oh my God. I mean, I have a list that just doesn't, doesn't get shorter right. of people that I want to talk to and people whose brain I want to pick and, and get other people to learn from those people. Yeah. I don't even know what Luke is doing these days. Yeah. I haven't heard that name in a while. That's really, right. really interesting. But um, <clears throat> I'm scrolling through my notes here. What did I want to talk and about? And also like other people, Whitney Cuisenberry, you know, that's another person that you should get on and talk to. She, well, there, I, I have to disclaim that she was a consultant for us for, I believe, one day when I was uh, still a consultant <clears throat> at my 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 first at my current position. So yes, okay. Whitney would be an awesome person I want to talk to. Yeah. But you know what? That's what I wanted to talk to you about. You said that you're the person in the back of the room at LavaCon, and I mean, how did that come about? And you know, you said community, which is it, it's interesting to me because like. 
from what I pick, you know, what I picture of someone who is recording the podcast or recording the video of people speaking at a conference is that it's, it's kind of one way, but it sounds to me like you're saying it's almost it's very two way at, at at least at LavaCon. At LavaCon, we have over a hundred virtual attendees. Really? Yeah, I'm online oh. with a hundred other people. And so I'm facilitating what's happening in the virtual space. The pe- the other people that work with me in the back of the room are helping what's going on in the room and capturing that video. I am facilitating a conversation and dialogue around the presentation. There's a back channel the entire time with a hundred people who are in from around the world. Oh, that's that's so what cool. I do. Oh, I didn't realize, so, you know, forgive my ignorance. I didn't know. Yep. So we, we stream LavaCon from just the main room. We don't go into any of the other rooms. So I'm online. That's why any questions from the virtual track always, you know, it's like, yes, we've got questions here. And someone asks, that's where all those questions are coming from, from our team. Uh, in the morning before LavaCon starts, we're on with as many folks that want to come on the screen. We talk to people from around the world. And then during every break, we're doing something. So we're either interviewing people in the back of the room. And so bringing a different experience to the virtual audience. So if they have questions, sometimes they come on audio, sometimes they type in their questions. And we try to get like these personal uh, you know, I get the rock stars in the back of the room. And then we actually go into the exhibit hall and interview the exhibitors so that people get an experience for that. We take them and show them lunch so that they see what we're eating. And we talk a lot about the food. And typically what happens is if someone can't make it to LavaCon, they come in virtually or someone wants to do it and they can't, you know, pay the whole way, they come in virtually. Um, and nine times out of 10, they try to get there another year because they've had such a rich experience online. And so partly it's marketing, right? So it's marketing the conference, but it's building a community around learning content. That's what I do. And so we've had collaborative projects come out of this from folks who want to do research and they get connected in this virtual space. Um, We've had like long lasting friendships. I have, I had a woman walk up to me last year and say, Felice, it's so-and-so. I have known her for three years online. I never met her in person. She's been LavaCon. It's the only way I knew her was in the LavaCon virtual track. And she's like, here I am. Great to meet you. And, uh, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not recording back there, honey. <laughs> oh, I thought I, you know, I, I have to admit, I thought you were like the producer and the person who was putting everything together, but there's a whole ton more that's going on there. But I mean, just it's, well, I guess it's it's interesting to hear the content strategy behind a conference for content strategy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you're a you're a you're a busy lady, and I uh, am. <laughs> I know you know I know you know when you're not a, when you're not doing all of this, you do have a very um, a very active, I guess, transportation life. I should say. I do. I have a very active transportation life. I. Um, I have a, I like to say my two favorite vehicles that I have. I have a 1967 Amphicar and a 1968 Piper Cherokee. Um, with the Amphicar, everyone can drive their car into the water. I can drive mine back out. <laughs> um, <laughs> that car has been in the family since I was born. I'm an original owner. So 1962. Oh, get out of here. 
1962, my father got his first Amphi car. Um, he had five of them all together. He was an insane inventor. Um, that was his primary transportation. He drove to work every day, went fishing, and then came home. And uh, Now, did he catch fish in the car? Yes. I catch fish <laughs> in the car, too. Come visit me. We'll fish I'm sorry, it out. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's just the, 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 the video, the, the my, picture in my mind is just, that's crazy. It's not just, it's not as silly as it sounds. When you have a bite, you step on the gas <laughs> in all seriousness. So like the, I think about the, my prized possessions. Yes. The Amphicar is, is important to me. Um, and, but I have the fish stringer. And if you fish, you know what that is. Um, I'm fish not a stringer. Fish I'm not yeah, a someone who's listening will know that he used to attach to the side of the car. And while he was in the water, the fish were in the water, submerged that he caught, all strung on the stringer. And when he got out of the water, they would flop against the side of the car. And sometimes he'd forget to bring them in and put them in a bucket in the back seat. Oh. So, um, but there's empty cars at. Uh, downtown Disney now, Disney Springs. So you can, you know, pay $75 and go for a ride in the Amphicar. I went up to the, when they first had them there, I went over to them and said, I'm an original owner and I want to meet all of the, the Amphicar captains. And there's a great picture of me with all the Amphicar captains. And we were, sh- you know, telling stories about my life in an Amphicar. And, uh, the little rubber ducky Amphicar actually has my license plate on it. It says I float. That's what my car says. <laughs> nice. So the little red rubber ducky Amphicar that says I float is modeled after my Amphicar. And, uh, and my other mode of transportation is the, our little airplane. So I've been flying for, I want to say 10 years. Um, and I used to have my pilot's license. I'm actually expired and not renewed because I just had, after I had back surgery, I never got my medical again. So mm. I fly from the right seat now. Um, <laughs> some, someday I'll get my license back and fly from the left seat. But sometimes I fly from the left seat too. But uh, my partner is a pilot and he's been flying for, gosh, 20 some odd years. And we've got our little plane and we try to fly every weekend. Um, oh, wow. I say, I, he lives to fly. I love to fly. So... Um, wow, okay. There's nothing like it. Yeah. Now, how far can you go with a plane like that? Well, um, it's got about five hours. The tanks, it's 40 gallons, so burns about nine gallons an hour. So five hours. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, 50 gallons, sorry. And, uh, but Joel has flown the plane around the U.S., so he took a couple months and flew. Oh, wow out to California all around longest I've flown in that plane is down to DC. Oh no, no, no. Prince Edward Island. We flew up to Prince Edward Island. So from here and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing this past weekend. It's autumn here. Now we were up in the sky and the colors were just stunning. Absolutely stunning. And it's, you know, in the Northeast, it's an hour flight to here or there and you're, you're in another state. You're in, you know, beautiful places all around and it's yeah it's it's a happy place nice okay so it was just i mean i was just curious how someone gets into flying someone gets into flying well people have people either love flying right since they were kids and i actually i'm 
big aviation enthusiast okay. as long as I as long as I wasn't in the aircraft. Um, and I was <laughs> a hot air hot air balloon person in the um, in the eighties. I flew on a couple of balloon trips and crewed on a balloon team. But I hated airplanes. I absolutely hated airplanes. And my story is. Uh, um, my sister got breast cancer and I realized that my fears were stupid huh. and any fear I had of flying was stupid. And I asked a good friend to take me up in his little plane and he did. And he t- said, let me see your hands. And I put up my hands and he put my hands on the yoke and I looked over and I was flying the plane and he wasn't. Huh. And that's all it took. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Yeah, you hold those controls, and then you find out how much it costs to get your pilot's license, and then you do it anyway. And then, and then you know, then once you have it, you're afraid of flying by yourself. And then you know, I'm very lucky I have a, a flying partner. I'm very lucky we have an mm. airplane, you know. And it's uh, and it's not as the having owning an airplane is not as expensive as you think it is. Like you can get an airplane for less than you can get a car. <laughs> Right. Oh wow. For under thirty thousand you can get an airplane. So you just need to take care of it and you need to, you know that's store it somewhere. Yeah, that's I mean, I guess that's kind of like boats, but like you know, I'm uh I'm a car guy, so yeah. I've driven I've driven some track days on racetracks and it's like nice. I would love to do this all the time, but I know how much it costs and like even just I ran out of fuel of one track day, I ran out of fuel on the last like 10 minutes and it was like $9 and 50 cents a gallon or something like that to fill it up there. I'm like, yeah. Okay. And that's why I pretty much just play racing games on my computer. Yeah. But yeah. well, I mean, I, I get, I mean, you know, obviously driving a plane or piloting a plane is, um, there's no comparison obviously, but I get, I get the, oh, yeah, um, there is. the idea of the cost. It's just, uh, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, no, there's a, it's a, it's comparative. I mean, our, our airplane is, um, has a, 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 a special thing on it. We can take automotive gas, ethanol free oh, okay. automotive gas. So it's not as, as expensive to fly. And in some cases, you know, flying for an hour costs less than driving for six. Huh. So we fly down to Long Island. It takes an hour and 15 minutes. It costs oh, so much here. less. Yeah, it costs so much less than driving to Long Island. Driving to Long Island is six hours, and it costs so much more. Well, why would you ever want to drive to Long Island? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, um, it's been fantastic talking to you, and I know there is so much I would love to talk to you about. And obviously, you know, we'll get together and talk some more, I'm sure. And you're, Or will you be at LavaCon? I, I guess, I'm assuming you'll be at LavaCon in a few weeks. I will be at LavaCon in a few weeks. I'll be sitting in the back room with a headset on. Awesome. I will love to see you there. And I hope, um, you know, if you're listening and I hope we, if I get this out in time, um, feel free to, to say hello to, to myself, myself, to me <laughs> and Felice. Uh, hopefully I'm sure Felice will be very, very busy, but um, you know, I'm sure we would be both happy to say hello to you. So, and if not Felice, where can we find you online? Where's the best way to contact you and find you? Sure. The best way to contact me is always email. It's just pbanner at gmail.com. Felicebanner.com is a, a website that needs, I'm the cobbler with worn out shoes, you know, <laughs> a website that needs some redoing. Um, and you can just Google me and find my contact info. Now, are you active in Twitter? I used to be. Okay. Um, I am on Twitter at Felice Banner. Okay. And uh, you can pro- 
poke me need to be more active at LavaCon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, it was, you know, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I'm glad we finally did it. So it was good to talk to you and good to uh, hear about your experience. And I, you know, I knew about you, but I didn't know as much as, as I thought I did. Well, it's always great to share, and I appreciate the opportunity to share with you, Ed. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get this done, but um, we can do it again in the future, and I look forward to seeing you a lot. Yes.